So the first one uh, that we will address is this question that came in, why do we have to believe in Jesus to be saved? Or another way of putting it is, why didn't God just save everybody? Okay, so to understand the question, this person's not asking why do we have to believe in Jesus as opposed to another religious figure. They're asking why do we have to believe? The emphasis is on the believing. Why does it take any response from us in order to be saved? In other words, why didn't God just at the cross when Jesus died automatically forgive everybody? Uh, Game over, we all go to heaven, we're all saved. Why does it take this faith? Why do we have to respond? Why does it, you know, which is a reasonable question. And there, are, there is a branch within, broadly within Christianity, that says you don't have to believe, you don't have to respond at all. This is called universalism, and universalists argue when Jesus died on the cross, everybody automatically saved. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter how you respond, or whether you respond, you're in, because ultimately everybody's going to end up saved anyway. So there is, you know, there's people that genuinely hold that view. I think maybe the best way to to have a shot at answering this question is to think about what happened on the cross. What happened when Jesus died? And I think it's helpful to think about Jesus' death being directed towards two different things. In the first instance, Jesus' death was directed towards God. Okay, it was directed towards God requiring uh, punishment, God requiring a penalty to be paid, God requiring a sentence to be undertaken for human, human sin. This is, the cross is directed towards God's justice. It's directed towards His justment, justice. It satisfies God's requirement for penalty and punishment for sin. And this is what Jesus' death in the first instance has accomplished. A price has been paid, a death has taken place, and so God's requirement that sin be justly uh, punished is therefore satisfied. God's wrath is satisfied. Now, if that's the only problem, if that's all the cross did, then God's forgiveness could be universal because Jesus died for the sins of every person. His forgiveness is available to every man, woman, and child who has ever been created. And if the only direction that the atonement or Jesus' death moved is towards God, towards satisfying His wrath and His justice, then Jesus' death would be universal. It would universally cancel out all of our sins. But the key here is that there is another direction that the cross moves. There is something else that the cross is directed towards. In the first instance, towards God, yes, but also towards us. But it requires something from us because it's not just God who has to be dealt with, in a sense, who has to be satisfied through the cross. It's also we have to choose. We have to choose no longer to be God's enemies. We have to choose no longer to harbor the alienation and the independence and the autonomy that you and I have set up before God. Is this making sense? Let me try and sum it up in the words, this is my favorite theologian, Stanley Grenz, and he he wraps all this together in a way much better than I could say it. He says, through Christ, God is reconciled to us, but in our sin, we remain at odds with Him. From God's side, therefore, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus is universal. Okay, so from His side, His forgiveness is universal. From the human side, however, 
its efficacy or its, its effectiveness requires our response, namely that we be reconciled to the God who has reconciled the world to himself. So do you see the two sides to this? If you're only looking at one side, then it's true. You could argue, well, why didn't God just save everybody? He, his justice was certainly satisfied. But the other side of the problem is our enmity towards God, our indifference towards Him, and that requires our response. That's why the Scriptures have verses uh, like the one that says, to those who believe in Him, John chapter 1, to those who believe in Him, to those who call on His name, to them He gives the right to become children of God. And through the New Testament, there is this emphasis on our response. God has done everything that needs to be done, but now it's like being, being let out of prison. You have to choose to step into that freedom. You have to choose to accept that response because part of the problem is your own indifference towards God. It's making sense? All right. So this is what I mean. We're doing these mini snippets today, all right? So that is, that's one question that took how long? Five minutes? We're doing well. We're going to stand. We're going to sing another song. We'll take a break, and then we'll come back, and we'll deal with the next question. Why are there so many different denominations? That's a good question. And it, that's a question that um, is quite relevant to Shore because often people come to Shore and you might be one of them and the, one of the first questions we often get asked is, what denomination are you? And my usual response is, we're, we're a non-denominational church. We're an independent evangelical church. But usually that just gets glazed looks, you know, and people kind of like, really? I don't know. That sounds like a cult to me. <laughs> because because you can see people fishing for a category, you know, fishing for a box. What's, but I need, I need a box. I need a, I've got a, my, my system here, you know, and, and you've got to be something. You can't just be nothing, all right? So um, this, this whole issue of denominations comes up. And, and what I, one of the things I love about Shore is that we run the whole spectrum. You know, I mean, if we pass the microphone around this morning and you all said uh, which denomination or tradition you'd come from, those of you that have come from another church before attending Shore, you would find there's a huge variety from Anglican, Presbyterian, Methodist, Brethren, Baptist, Pentecostal, Charismatic. I mean, we've got them all here. And that's one of the things I love about this church is you, it's the body of Christ, right? Just differences, diversity, unity and diversity. It's wonderful. Uh, but how is it that you can have a Christian movement or a Christian church but has so many denominations to it? And really, this is an historical question. How do we get to this point? And so, brief little history lesson. From the earliest time of the church, from the, the New Testament time itself, as the church, the Jesus movement, has moved into different cultures, moved into different uh, contexts, been led by different people, had different uh, groups within it, it has taken on different flavors. Uh, it has looked differently. Its methods, its forms, its styles, its structures, a whole lot of different things have changed. You can see this in the book of Acts. If you've read Acts, you see that what the church begins as is a very Jewish movement centered in Jerusalem, uh, still quite tied to the law and uh, very, you know, the Sabbath and these things. And then as the Apostle Paul begins his work, you have this Hellenistic or Greek arm of the church that starts to move much further into the Mediterranean world, and it looks quite different. Leadership structures are different. Its methodology, methodologies are different. And you have some conflict. Uh, this is why you have the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, people coming together and saying, hang on, we've got to sort out some differences here. We don't like what you're doing. You don't like what we're doing. Paul and uh, various other people had disputes and disagreements, and it didn't always go very well. So then you track forward to about the 17th, 16th rather, century, and the, the western arm of the church, you have the Protestant Reformation, and Martin Luther, and, and other reformers, Calvin, 
and Zwingli and these guys, who really set about trying to reform the church, bring it back to its biblical roots, return ministry to the people of God, but invariably it ends up being a separate arm, a separate branch, a separate movement, which we now know as the Protestant movement. And this was the division then within the Western church, Protestants one way, Catholics the other way. And then straight away, as soon as the Protestant movement is born, it already has four different branches to it. Lutheran, Anglican, Reformed, and Anabaptist. And the whole history of the last 500 years of the Protestant movement is that within these four branches, they split, and then they split, and then they split, and they split, and so on. And you have today, around the estimate is around 35,000 different denominations, just Protestant denominations. So this is already just the West part of the church and just the Protestant part of the church. Within that group, of which we are a part, 35,000 different denominations, all of whom disagree with each other on at least one thing. Right? And, you know, there's a range of things they disagree on, but everybody doesn't like one thing about what someone else is doing. Uh, I did a little bit of research and found that even if you just take the Baptist denomination and you just take North America, just the United States, let's say, there are countless different types of just Baptist churches, including free will Baptists, reform Baptists, separate Baptists, regular Baptists, United Baptists, Southern Baptists, Sovereign Grace Baptists, old-time missionary Baptists, landmark Baptists, evangelical free Baptists, and conservative Baptists. Again, all of whom disagree with each other on at least one thing. And, and I mean, to be fair, they do work together a lot, and they, they don't all just hold each other at arm's length, but there are, there are still, and there's a lot more than just those ones, but there are whole ranges of different groups. And then on top of that, you have a lot of independent churches like ours that are not affiliated with any particular denominational flavor, but draw people from a range of denominations and simply cling to the core tenets of the Christian faith. So it really is a huge um, melting pot. And you can interpret this in different ways, but I think it would be fair to say that this was never God's original design for the church. I mean, some people, hey, what a wonderful thing it is. And there are, of course, good things about denominations. It reflects the diversity of the body of Christ and different emphases, strengths, weaknesses by different churches, and that's, that's great. But personally, I struggle to see that, that the spread and the proliferation of different denominations, especially denominations that have just split and split and split, and it's been nasty and factitious, that that really reflects Jesus' vision for how he saw his movement going forward. Uh, I think it's a sad testimony to the tendency that we all have to separate ourselves from one another when we disagree, rather than trying to work towards unity. And there always has to be commitment to the truth in that, and some people feel their convictions just prevent them from fellowshipping with other people. Uh, but I think that it is something that we should grieve. The, the flip side of that is there is a wonderful trend that is happening. Uh, it really, in the last generation or so, a lot of the denominational barriers are starting to come down, which is fantastic. And New Zealand... This is happening here much more than it's happening in other places. When Anna and I were in the States for a couple of years, we, we noticed the way in which the denominational boundaries are still much, much stronger. The walls are still much more up. And, you know, Baptists are Baptists. Presbyterians, you know, stick, you know it's, it's quite still territorial. Over here, there's much more these days reaching across the fence 
Uh, different denominations working together, particularly in missions and outreach, uh, combined events, combined conferences, uh, pastors talking, gathering together. A lot of the old entrenched differences that denominations just disagreed on, particular little petty theological disputes, a lot of those things now, there's more dialogue. And people are more willing to come back to the table and say, let's have another look. Maybe there's a creative solution to this that we've never even seen. And even if there's not, does this mean we need to have separate camps forever? And you're starting now to see more and more unity across denominations. For my generation, I don't know whether you, whether you agree with this or not, but my feeling is that for most people in my generation now, when they're looking for a church, they don't really care what denomination it is. Walking, they don't care whether the sign on the door says Baptist, Anglican, Presbyterian, Methodist, whatever it is. They've got in their head what they're looking for in a church, whether it's good teaching, great children's ministry, uh, want to build relationships with people, whatever it is. And if they find that in an Anglican setting, fine. If they find that in a charismatic church, fine. A distant second is what denominational affiliation the church is. And I think that's great. Because it means now that some of those walls are coming down and we're getting back to just being the body of Christ. Able to love and learn and listen to each other, agree on the essentials and work together in spite of the fact we're not going to always agree on everything. And at an even bigger level, this is also happening. You're seeing now, even between Protestant and Catholic, more dialogue. Organisations like the ECT, Evangelicals and Catholics together, talking. Where there's just been a stony silence for hundreds of years. Theologians interacting with each other, starting to go back to some of the old debates that split Protestant from Catholic in the 16th century and start to have another look at the issues and start to say, hey, obviously we disagree on some things and we're not about to just give up our convictions, but let's talk. Let's at least have a conversation. And that in itself is so refreshing. And even at the broadest level of the great schism between East and West, there is increasing dialogue now. And in the Western church and the Eastern church, at, at, a, at a theological level, people are starting to talk again and let's, let's go back, let's have a look at the doctrine of the Trinity, if that's where we got tripped up, and let's just see if we can at least come back to the table. Let's decide what we can agree on. And that, that spirit is so refreshing, is so liberating. And that's one of the things that we try and capture here at Shaw. Uh, not to be territorial, not to be so boxed in that we can't love and learn and listen, but we are the church here. We've got all the denominations represented right here, and we want to be able to be part of the bigger family too. Whatever that looks like and however it works, we want to be able to reach out and work with many others, even if we don't agree with them on everything. So hopefully that helps to answer that question to some degree. Let's take a break there. Next question. Do people who commit suicide go to heaven? This is pretty raw stuff and uh, you know, it comes out of the experiences of real people and it's not just an abstract philosophical question. This is, uh, this is gritty and, and, and real stuff. Often when a question like that gets asked, there's a question behind the question or there's an assumption behind the question and sometimes people that ask to people, what happens to people that commit suicide, there, there can be an assumption behind that that whether or not you get into heaven depends on what you do. And the problem with, if you subscribe to that theory, suicide becomes a problem because it is the last thing that you do. And there is no chance after a person has committed suicide to do certain good deeds to somehow offset that uh, negative deed or to repent or to restore themselves or anything like that. It is simply the last 
act. And because it's so tragic and so negative, there is a fear of people who believe in, in more or less a performance-based system that they're therefore going to stand before God and whatever good stuff they've done will be outweighed by this tragically negative event at the end of their life. I think the response to that is to challenge the whole system and the whole way of thinking about on what basis God actually decides whether a person will spend eternity with Him, whether a person will be saved. And this is going to be familiar to a lot of you, but it's, it's just not a system based on what you do, including the very last act that you do. It's not based on that any more than it's based on the very first act that you do. God's criteria for whether or not we will uh, spend time in the new creation, let's use that language from last week, whether we'll spend eternity with Him is not based on your performance. It's not based on how good or how bad you might have been or how good or bad the very last action that you might have undertaken is, even if it was the, the tragedy of taking your own life. The one criteria that God will use is what you did with Jesus, is whether or not you had placed your faith in Jesus Christ, whether you had trusted Him for the sacrifice of your sin. And I think it is possible, again, you might disagree, but I, I believe it's possible for a person who genuinely has made a faith commitment to Christ, a genuine follower of Jesus, to get into a place that is so dark and, and just hit, hit a wall mentally and emotionally where they may even take their own life in a, in a tragic moment. Now, 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 should they have done that? Of course not. Was that what God wanted them to do? Of course not. But did it mean that they suddenly lost their salvation? I don't think so. Did it mean that at that moment they suddenly ceased to become a Christian and that overrode any faith that they ever had? I, I don't think that's how God treats us. I think it is possible for Christians to be trapped in conditions like depression, riddled with anxiety, to go through deep, dark valleys, which may even, in the most tragic of circumstances, lead a person to take their own life. Now, of course, that is not what God wishes. That is not what any one of us would ever uh, wish on another person. But I don't think it means that they weren't a Christian. I don't think it means that we need to call into question any of their faith. I think that person would stand before God and hear him say, bad call, but come and enter into the joy of your rest anyway. I think God knows that it's a tragic end to a human life, a life that he had given. But I don't think for a moment that for a person who is a genuine follower of Jesus, it means that their eternal destiny is other than what it always had been. So really the issue is not suicide as such, it's what we do with Jesus. Ultimately, that is the only basis. And even an act as tragic as suicide has to go in the category of the deeds, the things, the actions that we do. And all of those things are not the basis on which God is going to judge us for eternity, on the basis of which we'll be allowed in or not allowed in to the new creation. So that's a pretty gritty subject, and it's particularly difficult for those that wrestle with suicide for a person who wasn't a believer. But just know that the issue is not the suicide itself. That's not what God's somehow looking at and judging a person on the basis of. It comes down to what they did with Jesus. Now, there's another question asked by a different person, but it relates to this issue. And it is the question of, are there rewards in heaven? And it relates to the last question because... 
There are various passages in the Bible that seem to suggest there are rewards. And we've just been talking about how whether or not you get into heaven, whether or not you participate in the new creation has nothing to do with what you do, whether it be good or bad. Uh, and yet there are these sometimes troubling passages that seem to suggest that when you do good things, you're going to be rewarded in heaven. Let me just read you a couple of them. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, uh, 7 says, uh, Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Uh, Revelation 2.10 says, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you your life as your victor's crown. Or some translations to say, I will give you the victor's crown if you've been faithful. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.8, Paul says, The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. And then a few verses later, he says, If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. Ephesians 6.8 you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good you do. And 2 John 8 says, Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Now, that's kind of a, a, a difficult thing to get your head around, isn't it? Because people put up their hand at this stage and say, Hang on a minute, I'm a Christian. I'm saved by grace. You know, What's this business about rewards? This makes it sound like if I do a few good things, I'm going to get better treatment. Uh, and, and the kind of images that, that this conjures up are, you know, if I, if I can maybe help some people a little bit more, then, you know, Jesus is going to build another room on my mansion in heaven. I'll get a, like an east, east wing added on. Or, or if I can, you know, be, be a, a loving uh, husband or wife and, and a devoted parent, uh, maybe I'll have some sea views in heaven. Maybe there'll be a pool, maybe there'll be a spa added in. And we kind of have this sort of accounting system going on where a few more things here and, oh, that mansion's getting better and better. And, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man or the woman in heaven. It's going to be great. Uh, and of course, this is troubling because it sounds like a performance-based system of how things work. I think the best place in the Bible where this is explained a little more, Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 25. It's a parable where a, a master has these three servants, and he gives them uh, various amounts of bags of gold. First servant, he gives five bags of gold. Second servant, he gives two bags of gold. Third servant, he gives one bag of gold. And he goes away. And these servants, the first servant who has five bags, he puts the money to work and ends up with another five bags of gold. The second servant has two bags of gold and he puts the money to work and multiplies that, doubles it, four bags of gold. The third servant, just one bag of gold, he buries it in the ground. Doesn't do anything with it, doesn't invest it, doesn't try and work the money, he just buries it. The master comes back and rebukes the servant who just buried the one bag of gold in the ground. He said, what are you doing? What a waste. You've just now ended up with the same bag of gold. But to the other two servants... He commends them. And he says an interesting thing to both of them, same thing to both servants. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. I think that's the closest we get in the Bible to, to trying to get an explanation of what these rewards, a system of rewards is about. You notice that the master doesn't give the servants more gold. He doesn't say, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's another five bags of gold. That might have been nice, but he doesn't. He says, you've been faithful with this. I will put you in charge of many things. The reward is not more gold. The reward is what? Responsibility and authority and leadership. Now, that in itself sounds a bit funny to some people because we generally think of heaven or the new creation as this place where there's not going to be any responsibilities. There's not going to, surely there's not going to be levels of hierarchy. We're all, aren't we just going to be floating on clouds singing hallelujah with our harps, you know? Remember? Uh, again, this depends on how you conceptualize 
the new creation. I don't think the Bible teaches that we are all just going to be singing kumbaya around the campfire forever. I think the new creation is in on a new earth and it will be a redeemed human society. It will incorporate culture. It will incorporate social structures, infrastructure, arts, government, organization, all of the things that we experience in this life, but perfected and redeemed and infused with the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. So I don't think it's out of place to imagine that there will be various levels of responsibility, that there will be delegated tasks. We have a hard time getting our minds around that because we're so used to corrupt leadership and self-serving leadership and dirty politics in this life. It's hard to imagine government, human government, somehow being redeemed and resurrected to a new state, but I think it's possible. And I think this is what the new creation will be. It will be earthy, it will be human, and in its centre will be the triune God, but we will be given various tasks and responsibilities. Work and government and human responsibility all preceded the entrance of sin into the world. They're not part of the curse, they're part of the original good creation. To work, to be productive, to have responsibility, to be given delegated authority from God. And I think what we'll find in the new creation, you may have cities that have people, you know, who knows, there might be Auckland maybe a super city in the new creation. And maybe there might be a Lord Mayor, who knows? But I tell you, they won't be someone who exercises power just for themselves, acts for their own good, and is subject to the, the various forms of lobbying by all kinds of private interest groups. Leadership will be entirely other-centered. It will reflect the nature of the triune God, self-giving, serving, always acting completely in the public good and the public interest. It will be an honor to serve and to have responsibility, and it will be a privilege to have others in leadership over us, and it will be our delight to be able to serve them in deference to the God who ultimately all leaders will be in submission to. And I think what we'll find in the new creation is that those people who have levels of authority, who have levels of responsibility, be it over a re who knows how it'll work, over a region, over a city, whatever, they're probably going to be people you and I have never heard of. Not, not necessarily the people of the great political leaders of our time or any time, not the ones that have the great leadership skills and the, the decision-making authority, but perhaps the humble servant who has spent their life in quiet and gentle and unseen humble service before their God. I think that's why Jesus said it's the meek who will inherit the earth. I think that's why those people are the ones who will hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Let me put you in charge of many things. And so I think this moves us away from a reward-based system that ultimately becomes self-serving. We do things to get stuff. But we serve God now for the sheer joy and pleasure of it in order to bring Him glory. But we know that our humble service in this life may translate somehow into being rewarded through responsibility in the new creation. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. To subscribe to our free podcasts, 
or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz. Thank you.